Hello, friends and listeners of the LeaderCast podcast. This is Mo, the producer, jumping on really quick before this episode starts to let you know that we are going to be wrapping up season one of the podcast. The final episode in season one will be coming out on April 23rd. We are going to be coming back with an even better season two later this year. Stay tuned on our socials for updates as we know more, and thank you for being an avid listener. This is the LeaderCast Podcast, helping you be a leader worth following. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the LeaderCast Podcast. I am Haley Pangakis. Question. Have you ever encountered a leader who led through the use of fear? Many of you have and have seen just how toxic an organization's culture can become when fear is at its core. Fear-based leadership creates a culture where people are afraid to speak up, and this can stifle innovation and lead to sometimes deadly mistakes that could have been avoided. In cultures of fear, people are afraid to be themselves, which can, in turn, mean they don't build much of a relationship with one another, which suppresses collaboration in the process. There's so much bad that comes with fear-based leadership and its effects on workplace cultures. So if you ask me, leading or managing through the use of fear has absolutely no place in leadership. I wish I could say we lived in a world where this type of leader was extinct, but unfortunately, that is not the case. But luckily, our guest in this episode is on a mission to change that. Amy C. Edmondson is a Harvard Business School professor and author of The Fearless Organization, creating psychological safety in the workplace for learning, innovation, and growth. She was selected as number three of the top 50 management thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50. In this episode, we discuss what it means to have a psychologically safe workplace, why fear is detrimental to work culture, as I've alluded to, what you can do as a leader to establish a workplace in which people feel the freedom to be themselves and use their voice, and the role emotional intelligence plays in it all. We'll dive into all of this, but before we do, here's a quick message about LeaderCast Now, where you can learn insights related to building an organizational culture people want to be part of, and so much more from leaders just like the ones you hear on this podcast. Take a listen, and I will see you on the other side for my conversation with Amy C. Edmondson. LeaderCast Now is an online resource for your leadership development. Get the solutions to your leadership challenges on any device at the moment you need it. To learn more, go to now.leadercast.com. Good morning, Amy, and welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. We're so excited to have you. And I know we're recording this bright and early, so I appreciate you taking the time. And I'm hope I'm hoping that you've gotten your coffee in. So just thank you for, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So I'm just going to jump right into it. You are the author of The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. And there's a lot of ground that I'd like to cover in our short time today. So First and foremost, for those who haven't read the book, do you want to just start by defining what exactly is psychological safety? Psychological safety is a sense of permission for candor at work. It's the belief that you can speak up with ideas, concerns, questions, problems, mistakes, and your colleagues or your boss won't reject or embarrass you for it. Mm Mm-hmm. How did this book come to fruition? Was there some past experience with the psychologically unsafe environment that sparked this idea and showed the need? 
But yes, in, in a way, my early research as a, as a doctoral student years ago discovered, really somewhat by accident, but discovered huge differences in reporting behavior mm-hmm. in, a, in a couple of teaching hospitals. So, And by reporting behavior, I mean people's willingness or ability to speak up about medication errors and, and, and other sort of adverse events. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it turned out to be like at first it looked like the possibility of performance differences across these teams. But eventually I was able to rule that out and and find that the real difference, at least at that point in time, was people's sense that it was OK to speak up about it, which, of course, meant it's OK. It's possible to learn and improve. If you can't speak up, if you can't get the data on what's going wrong, you can't you can't improve. Mm-hmm. And and so fast forward, and in 2016, Google did a widely publicized study. It had a New York Times magazine cover story on big study to and I answer the question of why is it that some teams at Google were outperforming others? You know, everybody was smart. Everybody went through a very rigorous hiring process and, and all of that. But there were these kind of persistent performance differences across teams. and. To make Google's long story short, they finally found out, discovered that psychological safety was the critical variable. It was the variable that was explaining most of the variation in performance across teams. And, mm-hmm. and it was a kind of surprise to them. And that really put this on the public stage, I think, because I had been, there's a quite a long literature now in academia in organizational behavior and, and team effectiveness that, that uses this variable, finds it to be powerful. But with, um, with, with Google's discovery, it really catapulted it into the limelight. Yeah. So with that said, what does a psychologically safe workplace look like? That's a great question. You know, it's, it's one of those, you know it when you see it, but mm. if you look around and if you listen, you will hear people speaking as often about what they're struggling with, what's not going well as about their successes. So you'll, you'll hear people ask for help. Um, you'll hear people say, you know, here's a problem we're having. And, um, you, you might hear sort of well-meaning laughter, a kind of sense of humor about the predicament, uh, that, mm. that we're, that they're, that they're in. So there's a, just a kind of a goodwill and energy and, and, a, and a candor that you can, Definitely detect. Mm-hmm. So on the flip side of that, are there any red flags leaders can look for of maybe they have a psychologically unsafe environment? Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's almost the converse. But if you're not hearing about problems, it is very unlikely that it's because they don't exist. Right? We live in a volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world. Right? The, the, sh- the new, the shortcut being VUCA. Right? We, we, the world is more fast paced, more complex, interconnected than ever. And that's a, a kind of guarantee that things will go wrong as well as going right. And so if you're not hearing the bad news, it's probably a sign that people are reluctant to come forward with it, not a sign that it doesn't exist. Yeah. So with that said, how does a psychologically safe environment encourage people to speak up and what would you say this does for an organization? I know you brought up, you talk about this in your book and you also 
brought it up moments ago, you were mm-hmm. talking about the medical space and how not speaking up. I imagine that can lead to deaths and very bad mistakes that happen if people don't speak up. So, yeah, in fact, you know, the range of consequences, I've been thinking about this a lot recently because the range of consequences from not speaking up is huge, right? And in, in, in the book, I'll document consequences that range from, as you just said, loss of life mm-hmm. all the way down to just a sense of personal regret. I mean, in, in countless interviews, people will, when they're re- recalling these sort of stories where they held back, and they're willing to tell me or another researcher in that sort of safe context of a research interview, um, they'll report a sense of, oh, I felt like a wimp afterwards, or I, you know, it lingered with me. Like, what could I have made more of a difference or felt more connected if I spoke up? Right. So mm-hmm. it ranges from these sort of small, you know, senses of personal disappointment all the way over to, you know, at the extreme loss of life. And right. And in between are absolutely preventable business failures, some of them small and some of them quite large. You know, some of them headline grabbing like the Volkswagen uh, Dieselgate scandal where software engineers felt it was more palatable, I guess, to develop software to cheat the regulators, you know, than to tell their boss that was being asked could not technically be done at that time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, not speaking up can lead to mistakes that could have been avoided. But what about innovation? How does not speaking up, I mean, not speaking up definitely would stifle innovation, right? Yvette, thanks for bringing that up because I got started on the negative, but the the absence of the positive is just as important. You, You really can't have innovation without psychological safety because people won't, aren't willing to share those sort of wacky ideas, those mm-hmm. out-of-the-box ideas that might not be good in their own right, but are a stepping stone to build on. And if people are only willing to share sort of safe ideas or things that seem sane, you won't really get the innovation you need. Or if people aren't willing to say, hey, this process is fine, but I have an idea that would make it work even better. And they're not afraid that, hey, maybe the existing process was actually designed by the boss or the boss's boss, and that person might take offense with this idea. Then they're going to hold back. So, And the, the tragedy of lost innovation is that unlike the business failures or human safety failures that eventually do come to light, the innovation failures, you know, the innovation that never happened because someone held back with a good idea never come to light, right? You you remain in the dark. You don't know that we could have done something, you know, really different and really great had someone felt safe enough to speak up. Right. So you talk about this a lot in your book, fear-based leadership and how it's just detrimental to an organization. Do you want to share a little bit about that and how fear-based leadership impacts employee engagement? Sure. And, you know, just to step back, fear-based leadership is so much more common than we think. Like, you know, nobody imagines that managers come to work in the morning to try to frighten people. And, and, and of course they don't. Right? What, what happens is many, if not most managers hold taken for granted beliefs that, that are you know, if, if people aren't afraid a little bit, they won't do their best work. Like they won't try hard. There's a almost a, 
um, implicit belief in the power of fear to motivate. And the reality is fear does motivate, but what it primarily motivates is hiding. You know, I, if, if I'm afraid, I'm going to hide what I'm thinking and worrying about. I'm going to hide the stuff that isn't going wrong. And, and, you know, you can't manage a secret. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's quite problematic. So I think, I think a lot of well-meaning managers inadvertently rely on fear because they just think that's, that's the way to be a manager. And they're unaware of the loss that it engenders. And, and what happens even more neurologically is that when we're in a state of fear, our amygdala gets hooked. And when the amygdala is hooked, our kind of neural processing, especially in the part of our brain that is responsible for problem solving and analytic thinking and creativity and even short-term memory formation is less effective, right? So we're less able to do our best work when we're, when we're in a state of fear. So fear-based leadership is common. And I don't mean frightening bullies. I mean, just those sort of small behaviors and tools that, that managers use to kind of keep people on their toes that in a VUCA world can backfire, you know, in a world that is much more reliant on employee ingenuity and creativity and willingness to kind of team up with each other. The fear-based management is that much more destructive. Mm -hmm. Do you have any examples of what that looks like? What management tactics people are using that's instilling fear that leaders should try to avoid? I'll give you an example from VW. And then you can, you can sort of dial it back a little, if you will. But it's, it's, um, example where an executive says to a, a team doing product development, which by its nature is innovation, is uncertain, is a, a little sojourn into new territory and, and saying that a certain result must be achieved and must be achieved by a certain time. And, and then says something like, and I have every one of your names. And so, you know, you can imagine what goes through people's heads. And and I can imagine that this executive was brought up this way, in, in a sense. You know, this was how he was managed. He kind of inadvertently believes it works. But the people who are just hearing, I have your name, are thinking, I'm going to lose my job if this guy doesn't get what he wants when he wants it. And gosh, you know, the technology is a little sketchy right now, but let's make it look like. He's, you know, it works. And, and, um, and so you can imagine people wanting to be firm and, and even in a more mild sense, tools like insisting on particular targets in a realm where there's a certain degree of uncertainty is a fool's errand. Mm. Like we can aspire to certain targets, but who knows what mother nature, technology, you know, weather patterns and so forth are going to actually allow. So we have to remain humble in the face of the uncertainty that lies ahead. And when you say, this is the target, this must be the target, it induces fear and it induces covering up. I'm not trying to say, don't be ambitious, because I am a huge fan of being ambitious and a huge fan of, you know, what we call stretch goals. Mm -hmm. But stretch goals plus closed ears or the perception of closed ears is a recipe for failure. Mm -hmm. So what you need is stretch goals and I'm all ears. Like, let me know what you're seeing. Let me know what you're learning. I understand 
that this is a foray into new territory. A quick thing on KPIs or targets, you know, we all know what really happens is people try to game the system, knowing and fearing that if they miss their target, they'll be penalized. They try to set lower targets than they might otherwise, you know, lower targets than they might in their own, in their own sort of lives or, you know, they're, they're ambitious. They want to be creative. They want to, they want to do the best work, but they don't want to be penalized. So they'll, they'll gain it. And we don't want gaming. You know, mm-hmm. We want, you know, we want true engagement and honesty and transparency. Yeah. So that's one way leaders can build a psychologically safe environment. What are some other actions leaders could take to build a psychologically safe environment within their organizations? Developing world-class leaders in your community is now easier than ever with LeaderCast. In addition to our flagship May event, becoming a presenting partner allows you to stream multiple events per year, each with an opportunity to earn money. The new LeaderCast lets you invite 1 to 1,000 people with unlimited streaming opportunities. Check out more at LeaderCast.com or the link in our bio. I mean, it starts with sort of continuous reminders of not only why what we do matters. There's a lot of work out there on purpose and why a sense of purpose is is important and helpful in work where, you know, where people can sort of connect. We all want to connect into something larger than ourselves. Just be a part of, be a part of a group that's making a difference in the lives of, you name it, patients, customers, society. And, and so those, those periodic reminders kind of get us a little bit outside ourselves. You know, instead of being tied up in knots about how do I look? What do people think of me? I'm kind of, Hey, this is exciting. I want to be a part of it. I want to work with my, colleagues on this. And then more, even more specifically, noting, acknowledging both the uncertainty and the inherent challenge of the work is super helpful. Because in a sense, what that does is create a rationale, you know, for why voice makes sense. You know, if I say, gee, there's a lot we don't yet know about this project, Mm -hmm. then I'm essentially saying any one of you might have an idea or an observation that could contribute materially. So I'm, I'm kind of, remi- you know, kind of constantly send, sending a message that says, we don't know everything we need to hear from you. And then more even overtly, ask good questions. And good questions are the kind that you're asking right now, which is sort of you ask, they're not yes, no, they, they focus it, they focus on something relevant, something that matters, and give people room to respond. Mm-hmm. They're not yes, no, you know, they're not rhetorical. They're expressed in a way, just as you've been doing, they're expressed in a way that says, I genuinely want to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I know we know that culture is often built from top down, but what about those leaders that aren't at the top? What can they do to establish and encourage <laughs> psychological safety in their workplace? A great question. And, you know, I love, I want to make a quick distinction between culture and climate. Culture are the taken for granted norms and rules in an organization that are pretty widespread. You know, nearly everybody working in the same company kind of gets it, kind of understands and shares the same culture. But climate is a more uh, visceral interpersonal construct. 
And, and psychological safety is a climate variable. So climate describes you and me, my, me and my colleagues right here, right now. And what we have found after, you know, study after study shows enormous differences in climate across teams, even within the same strong corporate culture, let's say. And what that means with respect to your question is climate is actually created in the middle. Climate is very much influenced by team leaders, project managers, unit directors. You know, they're the, it's the proximal leader, the, the, the leader who oversees some interdependent work of a number of people. And so that means that actually psychological safety, it's, it's absolutely true that the top contributes and can do important things. And leaders in the middle of the organization have enormous ability and influence to shape their own teams in a way that's really healthy and learning oriented. And, and they do that in some of the ways we've already been talking, referring to the mission of the team, asking good questions, listening thoughtfully. You know, they, they just, they set that good example and they kind of enforce those norms of interpersonal safety. And, and then some people might be thinking, yeah, but I'm not even a team leader. I'm just, you know, an individual contributor. And to that, I say, and you too can make a small difference in your own spot. You know, wherever you are, you can ask your colleagues good questions. You can listen thoughtfully. You can, you can express curiosity and respect and those small expressions of interest go a long way toward letting others know that they matter. And that's the kind of very kernel of this. Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit, LeaderCast theme this month is focused on emotional intelligence. So I'd like to throw a question out there related to that. So what role do you, would you say emotional intelligence plays in psychological safety? A huge role. Emotional intelligence, well, at least one important part of emotional intelligence is self-awareness. And, and, and a second crucial part of emotional intelligence is the ability to read others. And people who have high EQ are better able to understand how they might be coming across in ways that inadvertently silences others. For example, many well-meaning leaders and people who you know, there's research that shows that when you, you get promoted higher and higher, you know, you're not aware of it, but you end up doing more of the talking in a particular meeting. And, and then that can inadvertently crowd out other voices, for example. And the more, more emotionally intelligent leaders are, are less prone to that very natural kind of error. Mm-hmm. And, and so more self-awareness to know how you might be coming across, to be aware of how you might be making it harder for others to contribute is crucial here. And then other awareness, you know, that ability to read body language and and, uh, nonverbals can let you know when someone looks hesitant or looks puzzled or looks concerned and you can sort of reach out, hey, you know, Jennifer, what's on your mind? Bob, what are you thinking? Right. So there's this better ability to just sense and, and respond that comes with emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. Well, Amy, I know that we're getting close in our time. So I have one more quick question for you. Because this is the LeaderCast podcast and our mission is to fill the world with leaders worth following, 
I have to ask, in your opinion, what makes a leader worth following? (laughs) Such a great mission. A leader is worth following, I think, first and foremost, because they're going somewhere you believe mm. makes sense and is important, you know, and, 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 and makes a difference. And you want to be a part of that. And, and then secondarily, you believe in that person's own sort of sincerity and integrity. I mean, you, you, be, you believe that they're not just in it for themselves, but they're, they're in it for for the sake of the mission, the goal as well. And, and, and so, you know, it really does matter that people trust you, you know, that they, they believe you're, you're sort of a person who is not entirely about yourself. Mm-hmm. I love that. Great answer. Well, thank you so much, Amy, for joining us on the show today. We really appreciate you taking the time and such great insights that you've provided our leaders. So appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed this interview and that you learned some tools for ensuring that your organization is one that is psychologically safe. You can connect with Amy on Twitter at Amy C. Edmondson and purchase her book, The Fearless Organization, on Amazon and at other major book retailers. You can find more content related to culture building through our blog, newsletters, webinars, videos, and more. Just visit leadercast.com to find more of our content. And if you like what you heard today, please share, rate, and review this podcast so we can continue to grow our following and help leaders like yourself on their leadership journeys. Check out our previous episodes and subscribe so you never miss the latest from the LeaderCast podcast. Again, thank you for tuning in. Now, go be a leader worth following. Thanks for tuning in to the LeaderCast podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. In today's ultra-competitive job market, top-tier talent are leaving companies in search of top-tier professional development. Now more than ever, you must invest in your emerging leaders. LeaderCast 365 is a world-class professional development system featuring access to three annual LeaderCast events, a post-event journey to activate the inspiration and insights gained from LeaderCast events, plug-and-play lunch-and-learn programs with group discussion questions, concise video courses to address weaknesses and build upon strengths, and our library of more than 1,200 short-form videos from a slate of industry experts organized into 16 key professional development categories. Invest in your all-star employees and attract new top talent to join them with LeaderCast 365.